Why don't I read? This is God's word, church. This is all we need. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you this morning for this provision, the gift of your word. Lord, we need you this morning. We need you to speak to us. We need you to encourage us. So Lord, we ask, send your Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts. Help us to see our Lord Jesus in this word. And we pray it in his name. Amen. (laughs) 
Well, it's a fact that over-familiarity can cause great things to become nearly invisible. Over-familiarity, it can cause even significant things to become nearly invisible. You know, there's a beautiful couple in our church, their names are Dave and Priscilla Lynn. And uh, I still remember the first time I visited their home. Uh, They live right next door to the rail line that stretches from Epping, whatever, down through to Hornsby, sort of northwest rail line. And they literally live right next door to that rail line. And so, of course, every time a train goes by, uh, you can imagine what unfolds. And I remember being in their house, and suddenly you're feeling everything starts to shake. And I'm suddenly like... And then suddenly, I, I, it's like shaking, everything's crashing, there's like a freight train coming through the house, and I still remember what I said to David. I said, David, what is that noise? And he blankly looked at me and said, What noise? Oh, that, that's, that's the train going past. Now, you laugh, but it's true, isn't it? Over-familiarity can cause significant things to become nearly invisible. And I put to you this morning, the same truth applies to a passage so familiar as this. It's true that we can become so familiar with passages such as the burning bush that the glories of God contained within can become nearly invisible. And I'm hoping this morning that with God's help, we can see some of the glories by peering deeply within. Uh, I've entitled this message, if if you're a note taker and you're into that sort of stuff, uh, called from the flames. And really, I've got two simple points, points that follow the passage, but one hope for us this morning, and that really is that we'd see that our holy God calls the most unlikely of people to serve Him. That's the one hope for this morning, that our holy God calls unlikely people to come and serve Him. That's where we're going. Well, let's dive in. Point one, the holy God. Uh, Just want to recap the story to get a feel for where we are. This story began 400 years earlier with God's people enslaved in Egypt at the hands of a cruel regime. Uh, There's this pharaoh, this king, who's afraid of the Israelites, their growth and prosperity, and so he first starts to enslave them in order to try and minimize the growth. It doesn't work, so he begins to murder their sons, and as he oppresses, God prospers the people, and they continue to multiply. And we see these multiple examples of courage in the midst of difficulty. Uh, We were uh, introduced a couple of weeks ago to these uh, faithful pillars Pua and Shifra, these two uh, midwives who bravely defy Pharaoh's edict. Uh, we were then introduced to these two characters, Jochebed and Amran, the parents of Moses, who place their beautiful boy among the reeds, who ends up being raised up by Pharaoh's daughter and named Moses. 
And we see as the story unfolds from behind the scenes, as Dave shared last week, Moses begins to grow up in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. And around the age of 40, uh, basically begins to feel a stirring in his heart. He begins to identify with the Israelites, knowing their and seeing their great oppression, and he decides to visit them. Uh, he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten, and in what's a really kind of calculated move, because he kind of checks to see if the coast is clear, he murders this Egyptian. Now, in Acts 7, uh, the writer, uh, Stephen, informs us in a speech, he says that Moses believed that the Israelites would see that God was giving them salvation through his hand, and yet they don't understand. And now he's wanted for murder, and so he flees to Midian. And yet at the same time, we see that God had this special plan for Moses. Midian, in Midian, he stands up for some women being bullied by shepherds. Uh, he finds himself in the house of this man called Jethro, who's the priest of Midian. He marries one of his seven daughters, uh, Zipporah, and they have a son who they call Gershom, which means foreigner or sojourner in a foreign land. And the Bible says that many years passed from this moment. In fact, Acts 7 in Stephen's speech, he says 40 years go by. 40 years. And Moses is now an old man, 80 years of age, when our story continues. Why don't you read with me that first verse from chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses appears to be a massive failure in life. Moses had lived up to the age of 40 in the king's palace, and now he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Shepherds were of the lowest status in Egypt, and they were hated. Joseph instructed his brothers 400 years earlier in Genesis 46 to say they were shepherds. Why? Because they wouldn't be a political threat to to Pharaoh. They're the bottom of society. More... Moses is a foreigner. He doesn't fit with these people. He names his son Gershom. He names his son alien, stranger, foreigner. More, he's a failed leader. He'd fled for his life after trying to release his people. More, 40 years on, he doesn't even own any possessions. Notice what the passage says that we've just read. It wasn't that he was keeping his own flock. No, he was keeping the flock of who? His father-in-law. Just imagine with me what this would be like. Imagine a kid growing up in this neighborhood, in Warunga. A kid whose dad was a CEO of one of the big four banks. Imagine this kid who went to Knox at school, who did really well, was popular, captain of the school, a top student gets into UCID law, completes his master's, gets a job in a top firm. And now 40 years on, he's 80 years old. The age at which you should be enjoying retirement. But this man is a fugitive 
living in Mount Isa in Queensland, cleaning toilets at Westfield. That's the modern equivalent of this story. If you met this man, would you have picked him as a candidate to be one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? Now, by our measure in Sydney on the North Shore, this guy's a failure. He's a wash-up. He's a sob story. He's wasted talent. Let's keep reading. Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You know, Horeb in the Bible, it's used interchangeably with the word Sinai. Horeb probably means kind of like the general region. Sinai is the Mount Sinai, the actual mountain within the region. And Moses had been taking Jethro's flock in search of food to the west. It's not desert, but it's probably imagined like uh, uncultivated wilderness. Uh, We know that from Exodus 34, which uh, God commands or forbids grazing of flocks in front of Mount Sinai. So it was kind of like unmanaged wilderness. And notice that Moses, in this passage, is minding his own business. He's not searching for God. He's not plotting to save people. He's not aspiring to leadership. He's doing what he's done for the last 40 years. And what is about to happen to Moses in this moment would make such an impression on him that it would stick with him for the rest of his life. Let's read on, verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. We can assume that at this time, it's actually now in the dark of night. Otherwise, probably, we're not told, but it wouldn't have drawn his attention so much. And he sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And so Moses decides that he's going to come a little closer and see for himself what is going on. And we're told in verse 2 that this angel or messenger of Yahweh has in fact appeared to him. Let's keep reading verse 4. And it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Yahweh sees that Moses is coming closer to see the burning bush, and notice what it says. God calls him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. So which one is it? The angel of the Lord or Yahweh? The answer to this question is that it's actually the angel who is Yahweh. The way the angel of the Lord is written here is best translated, the angel or messenger that is Yahweh. 
or the angel Yahweh. This is an appearance of the invisible God in visible form. He's manifesting his presence in a way that Moses can see. You know, just like the pillar of cloud and fire, just like the dove that descended on the Lord's baptism, just like the greatest of all images of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus himself. You know, Bible commentator Douglas Stewart says it this way. He says, The angel Yahweh was not all there was to God, but was a true and real representation of him. The, the God of the Bible, church, in this scene is making himself known to Moses. He is revealing himself. And it goes on. Read with me verses 5 and 6. It says, Then he said, This is the angel, Yahweh. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God stops Moses in his tracks. He tells him to take off his sandals. He says, this ground, Moses, is holy. You know, in the ancient Near East, sandals were made of animal skins, and so they were considered unclean. More than that, it was a sign of respect when entering someone's presence or home, as it still is in many cultures today. He introduces himself as the God of Moses' father, Amran, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And how does Moses respond? From curiosity to fear. He covers his face to hide from the angel Yahweh. What is the startling revelation here? What is it that's turned Moses' curiosity into fear? Well, the answer, he's caught a glimpse of the holy God. Come no closer. My holy presence has made this ground holy, is what God says, in effect. You see, holiness is a hugely important theme in the book of Exodus, and in fact, in the whole Bible. It's a word that has barely occurred in the whole Bible up until this point. But in the book of Exodus from here on would be repeated another 69 times. The problem is, for us I think, that there's really great confusion when it comes to the word holy. I mean, what do you think of when you think of the word holy? I think some of us might think of like a holy man, you know, like a spiritual leader or a a guru or like a teacher, a mystical, someone really wise. I think for others, you might think of holy living, like moralistic, you know, self-righteous, pharisaical, holier-than-thou sort of thing. I think we're pretty cynical about holiness. You know, holy men have been recently increasingly exposed as frauds, committing things like child sexual assault and so on. But to be holy in the Bible means something very different. To be holy is to be unique, to be unparalleled, 
to be unrivaled, to be set apart, to be above and beyond all else. You see, a good illustration of this, a good way to think about God's holiness, is to consider the sun. You see, the sun is unique in our solar system. It's in the center and all the other planets orbit around it. It's unique in that it's huge in size and that it's a burning hot ball of gas surrounded by planets. And in the same way, God is unique above and beyond all that exists in the entire universe. He's greater in power and in might and in wisdom and in understanding and in love and in purity. God has been revealed in the Bible as a father loving his son by the Holy Spirit. His essence is this powerful love, this all-consuming love, this unparalleled love in all of the universe. But the problem is that we are broken people who, unlike God, are consumed with self-love, constantly wrestling with defiance towards our Maker, following our own self-interests. But such is the power and the purity of the love of God. Wickedness enters His presence and His very being seeks to consume it. Much like any object that gets too close to the sun will disintegrate. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, explains our problem in the following way. He says, We reveal our natural hostility toward God by the low esteem we have for Him. We consider Him unworthy of our total devotion. We take no delight in contemplating Him. Even for the Christian, worship is often difficult and prayer a burdensome task. Our natural tendency is to flee as far as possible from His presence. His word rebounds in our mind like a basketball from a backboard. By nature, our attitude toward God is not one of mere indifference. It is a posture of malice. We oppose His government and refuse His rule over us. Our natural hearts are devoid of affection for Him. They are cold, frozen to His holiness. By nature, the love of God is not in us. You see, God's holiness burns bright like the sun and the darkness of our hearts cannot withstand it. In the presence of the holy God, we immediately glimpse our insignificance compared with God's might. His purity of love within the three persons begins to pull us apart at the seams and destroy us so that along with the prophet Isaiah, we would say, woe is me, For I am destroyed. For I am a man of unclean lips. Yahweh says to Moses, come no further. He means danger. And Moses hides his face. You see, God has revealed himself as the Holy One. Why the burning bush? That isn't consumed. What's the significance of that? Well, here's the fire that requires no fuel to burn. Here's the unquenchable flame, the eternal fire. 
The fire that would appear on Mount Sinai, the fire that would rain down on the Egyptians, the fire that would guide the Israelites at night, the fire that would light the lampstand in the tabernacle. Well, why the reference to all of Moses' relatives? Well, he is the Lord over all history, faithfully keeping his promises to all of Moses' ancestors, and he has not forgotten. He repeatedly gave his children to these as good as dead men. And he will rescue his people from death. He is the Holy One and Moses hides his, faith, hides his face in fear. Well, can I ask you a personal question this morning? Have you seen the fiery flames of our Holy God? And do you live in reverent fear of him? You know, here in Sydney, our secular culture has stripped God of His holiness and tried to domesticate Him. You know, we've made God our mate. The grandpa God with no teeth and therefore no bite. The understandable God who operates according to our reason in ways we only understand only and never beyond. Who surprisingly loves Western values like, just like us, like tolerance and acceptance, and forgiveness, and equality, and most importantly, capitalism. And he doesn't judge, he just agrees and hugs. Sound familiar? But this is the God of our imagination, and it's not the God of the Bible. Can I press you guys, like, even a little bit further? Does your preparation for our Sunday gatherings reflect a reverence for the Holy God? The truth is when we gather as a church, the temple of God is coming together and we are coming into the presence of the same Holy God, the God of the burning bush. Are we preparing our hearts by prayerfully reflecting on Scripture or singing songs of praise? Do we arrive early just to in some way bless the body of Christ and encourage the saints? Or are we usually late? Miss a few songs, no biggie, right? Latte in hand, half distracted by last night's footy score. More interested in catching up with friends than worshipping the living God. Do we treat other things as priorities like sporting engagements or birthday parties or extra sleep after a long weekend? Are we coming to worship the Sydney domesticated God or the holy God? You see, all of us in some sense, if you're like me, you can feel such failure on this one. And yet I put to us this morning, we need to reclaim something of the vision of Moses the holy God of the burning bush. But here's the truth. We've received a vision of the holy God far greater than the burning bush and the angel Yahweh. And that is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Colossians 1.15 says, but he is the visible expression of the invisible God. 
just like Yahweh commanded Moses to take off his sandals in his presence 1,500 years later, so too would God the Son, Yahweh incarnate, have his disciples to remove their sandals. But different from the revelation to Moses, the Lord Jesus does not have them keep their distance, but rather draws near. And John writes in John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Why? Why would Yahweh humiliate himself with the task of a slave? Mark 10, 45. Because even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, behold your holy God. It was a picture of his mission. He had come to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to wash clean even our most filthy parts. That was the achievement of the cross, a place taking death, cleansing us by the blood that allows us to draw near and to worship the Holy One. Isn't he unique? Isn't he unparalleled? Isn't he unrivaled? Isn't he set apart above and beyond all else? Isn't he the holy God? Doesn't that just make you want to abandon all else and gather with the saints to worship? Well, that's point one, the holy God. But not just point one, the holy God. Point two, an unlikely commission. Point two, an unlikely commission. Let's pick up the story from where we left off in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. The God of Israel, he sees and he hears and he knows and he has come to deliver. He's heard their cry. That word actually means like yelling or screaming from despair or unhappiness. And for 430 years, they've endured misery and affliction upon infliction, enslaved in Egypt. And you can only imagine the sorts of horrors inflicted upon God's people. And so you can only imagine just the excitement that Moses would have felt to hear that Yahweh is going to deliver his people from Egypt to this abundant land. Good and broad, it's a large land. It's flowing with milk and honey, which, which means it's a fertile land. It's filled with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all these. The idea is it supports loads and loads of people. It's a brilliant land. We read on in verse 9, it says, 
Or Yahweh says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God has heard their screaming. He's seen their affliction. You know, God has been describing in all this detail what he intends to do. And his plan is sounding so good. You can almost hear Moses saying, Yes, God, this is awesome. It's going to be wonderful to watch on as you do all of this. Here I am, God, ready to watch. Then God drops this unexpected bombshell. Read with me verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God intends to deliver his people, all right, but here's the surprise. He's chosen a man to accomplish it by. He's chosen Moses. And God could have explained how he was going to liberate his people. Instead, he chooses to send Moses, and you can almost hear Moses' heart sinking. What? Look what he says in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Who am I to do this, to bring Israel out? He's saying, God, but I don't have what it takes. And he's right. Let's recount the facts. Moses is an elderly man of 80 years of age. He's a shepherd, but doesn't even own his own flock. Egypt was a superpower at the time, like USA or China, except ruled by a cruel regime that was horribly oppressing its people with slavery. Moses has no history with this pharaoh or powerful backers to guarantee his slavery. What was there to stop pharaoh from saying, as he listened to Moses, eh, yeah, you, just go and kill this guy? Nothing. What was to stop uh, pharaoh from making Moses just another one of his slaves? Oh, that's all really good. I'll have a million plus one slaves. Take him away. Nothing but the power of Yahweh. Also, it wasn't like Moses had an attempt to lead Israel to freedom before, and it all went horribly wrong. Now, God could have, at this point, tried to reassure Moses. Look, Moses, remember your years of growth and wisdom in the Pharaoh's house. Look, remember your years of shepherding, how I humbled you and prepared you. You're both Egyptian and Israelite. I've humbled you over the years, and you're perfect for leading my people. But that's not what he says. Listen carefully to what he says. He says this. But I will be with you. But I'll be with you. Moses was exactly right. He didn't have what it takes. But that wasn't the point. Yahweh was going to deliver Israel through Moses despite his abilities, not because of them. And so Yahweh goes on, and here's a sign for you. I'm going to give you a sign that this is true, that I've sent you. When you've brought the people of e- out of Egypt, you shall serve God 
on this mountain. Does that puzzle you as a sign? Isn't a sign meant to build your confidence up? Like, I'm going to do this little thing, you're going to see it, and you're going to be like, great, yeah, it's true, you're with me. Here's a sign that I'm sending you, says God. You'll know when you're back here worshipping me at Mount Sinai that everything I've said to you is true. God is saying to Moses, the sign is, I'll do what I say, and you'll know it when I do it. God is saying the sign is, trust me. You see, Moses' call from the flames, it's such an unlikely commission. You would never pick that God would choose him. And yet I put to you, there are many, many similarities between Moses' call and the call that church we have received. Here's just a few of them. Firstly, just like Moses, we were not seeking God when he appeared to us in glory. Moses wasn't seeking God. He was running away from God when God broke into his life. He wasn't jostling for leadership like, I don't know, Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton or something. He was avoiding it. He wasn't training for ministry. He was minding his own business. And God appeared to him in the midst of his darkness. And that's us. We were running from God. We had hearts at war with him. We might not have seen a burning bush, but he broke in and he shone his light and we came to see and love Jesus. Secondly, just like Moses, all the details of our lives are part of his plan. You know, Moses didn't plan to launch a failed military coup. He didn't plan to be in exile for 40 years. He didn't plan to become a humble shepherd wandering the wilderness, to be called as an elderly man to a difficult task. I can assure you that wasn't Moses' plan. But it was 100% God's plan. God's plan to strengthen and prepare him. And just like Moses, all the details of our lives are part of his plan. It's just easy to feel like they're not. Like we've been forgotten. You know, maybe for some of us, it feels a little bit like we're still living in Pharaoh's palace, so to speak. You know, like all is well and things are great. Well, at least for now. But for most of us, it might not be 40 years in the wilderness, but how about illness with no expiry date? How about infertility? How about disappointment with career? How about a broken marriage? How about a child with disability? How about the loss of a loved one? How about grief with no foreseeable end? How about being single, longing for marriage? None of these struggles were in our plans. But let me encourage you, church, they are 100% in His plan. Just like Moses, he's molding us, shaping us, strengthening us, preparing us, moving us, guiding us, humbling us, and leading us. Why? Because he wants to use us. And so thirdly, just like Moses, we also have an unlikely commission. You know, you can't be in this church for long and realize that we're passionate about mission. 
we love Jesus, we love our neighbors, we want them to know about Jesus. But when it comes to mission and telling people about Jesus, it's so easy to feel two things, feel like a failure and feel like a fraud. You know, all the times I've been with my mates and just chickened out. All the questions I'm afraid I'll receive, but I won't be able to answer. Maybe your neighbors are people who have a different religion from you, and you just feel overwhelmed at the thought of sharing Jesus with them. For some, the truth is that no one in your office even knows you're a Christian. And the result is you feel overwhelmed. You feel it's too hard. You feel paralyzed. You know your neighbors are in bondage, but just like Moses, you find yourself saying, who am I that I should go? Here I am. Send someone else. I don't have what it takes. If that's your self-assessment, just like Moses, you're 100% correct. You don't have what it takes. But you're also just like Jesus' disciples who were in a shambles when Jesus appeared to them having risen from the dead. And just like God addressed Moses' fears from the flames as he sent him out, so too Christ reassures us with the same words as he sends his disciples out. And he said, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just like Moses, he's brought us in to send us out. We have this unlikely commission. We can be overwhelmed by the task at hand. But Jesus Christ encourages us in the same way as he encouraged Moses at the bush. He is with us. And he has chosen the foolish, the weak, and the despised to shame the wise and the strong. The strength from the task for the task comes not from us, but from the one who is with us. Well, in closing, it's true that familiarity can cause invisibility. Just like the trains at the Linz can disappear, so too we can miss the glories of God in an overfamiliar passage like the burning bush. I trust you've seen this morning the holy God of Israel who appeared to Moses in the flames and yet humbled himself to serve. I trust you've seen his unlikely commission to Moses and to us who promises that he is with us. Church, I trust you've seen that our holy God calls the most unlikely of people to come and serve him. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, how can we thank you enough for the grace you have extended to us? Lord, you know our hearts and you know our wrestle that we struggle so hard to truly remember and to treasure you as who you truly are, which is the holy God of Israel. Help us to catch a vision of your holiness.
Help us to treasure you, the one who appeared to Moses in glory, and yet the one who humbly died on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, as we think about the plight of our neighbors, and we think about your call upon our lives to lead them out of darkness, help us to remember your word to Moses. But I will be with you. Lord, you are with us and you will never forsake us. So let us trust in you and go as you save people for your name's sake, just like you did us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.